Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to talk with Lowell Bayer about the new books, The Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2. The Endangered Species Act of 1973 is one of the most cherished and reviled laws ever passed. It mandates protection and preservation of all the nation's species and biodiversity, whatever the cost. It's been a lightning rod for controversy and conflicts between industry and business and environmentalists. And the year 2023 marked the 50th anniversary of the ESA. It was also another year in the ongoing crisis of biodiversity loss, species extinctions, climate change, and natural disasters. Conservationist, environmental historian, author, and attorney Lowell Bear brings to life the stark choice that now faces America and the world, the act to save our vanishing natural world or risk the consequences. And uh, we bring on uh, Lowell Bear. He's an attorney and a legal environmental historian <coughs> and author. And he's worked in Washington, D.C. throughout his 60-year career as a tireless advocate for natural resources and wildlife conservation. Uh, Lowell Bear, welcome to the program. Well, good morning, Tom. And good morning, Utah. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Um, how did you and how and why did you get involved in this area of conservation and the Endangered Species Act? It's been a slow, it's been a slow progression throughout my <clears throat> life. My youth was spent in a rural community and in an agrarian uh, society. And um, I've always been in, interested in nature uh, as a youth and right up through my career. And uh, it's been a slow, slow process as uh, I began to practice law in Washington where people with environmental issues would come to me uh, because they knew I had an agrarian background and understood it better than, than a lot of people from urban areas. And so it's, it's just slowly built over the last 60 years of just my career alone. But I came at it with uh, a, a youth that was... Uh, with both uh, uh, feet in in the in the the, the uh, Indiana dirt, if you want. Indiana, yeah. Um, I noticed that reading your uh, extended bio that uh, 2018, after you know a long distinguished career as an attorney, uh, you went back and got a uh, doctor of philosophy and environmental history uh, degree in, in uh, University University of Saint Andrew, Scotland. Yes, I did. I for years didn't have a PhD. I had a doctor of jurisprudence, but sometimes I felt as though I needed that because I worked with um, I worked with um, PhDs uh, throughout my career, and uh, I just thought it might help my credibility a little bit more with the environmental and scientific community. So before we do a kind of a deep dive, uh, why why these books, Codex of Envir- Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2, what uh, did you want to accomplish with uh, with these books? Well, uh, Tom, first of all, uh, when I uh, would study the Endangered Species Act over the years, <clears throat> there were a, a many articles written on, on various sections of the Act. And when it was 20, 30, and 40 years old, there were brief histories written, but they were incomplete. They focused more on one or two of the, of, of the, of the many sections of the Act. And uh, I knew all of the men. I was here. Uh, in Washington when uh, it was conceived and enacted uh, both in 66, 69, and 73. And I knew all of the people involved, and nobody had ever written the complete history. And I said, before these guys start dying off, um, I better get this down on paper. So I conducted, oh, somewhere, I've lost track, but 
75 or 80 interviews, which have all been transcribed um, uh, and uh, um, recorded this for the history books because it's such an involved act and it's such a controversial act. People people in the future, new entries into our world are going to, and and, and, uh, researchers are going to say, how did we get to where we are today? And I thought it was uh, um, the appropriate thing to do is to put it down on paper and, and save this history so in the years to come, people have a, a, a place to go where they can see the complete um, uh, unbiased history of the act. Yeah, that's, that is a great thing. Um, let's get into some of this history. When did America first start worrying about endangered species and biodiversity and the, yeah. these problems? Well, it really started in the, in the early 60s. The, the 60s and the 70s were what I call the Green Revolution, when the American public began to wake up with a series of environmental issues. And um, they um, were losing species of great concern to them, the whales, the polar bears, the grizzly bears, black-footed ferrets, elephant striped cats, uh, the condors and the whooping cranes and the bald eagle. Uh, America became very, very concerned about this at the, at the layman's level, at the public level. And so the Congress got concerned about it as well. And that's, that's what stimulated the enactment of the 1966 Act followed by the 1969 Act. And then both of them were incorporated in, the, in what we deal with today, the 1973 Act, which, which was the, uh, the uh, Ted Stevens from Alaska called it uh, the pit bull of environmental law. Uh, why the pit bull? Well, because <clears throat> it really put teeth into the law. The 66-69 law had really no penalties for violating and and uh, either killing or disturbing the habitats of endangered species. And um, so this particular law has, has, the 73 Act has a lot of teeth in it that um, many people were, frankly, unaware of the, the, the breadth and the depth of it uh, when it was initially passed. But, but it, it, it really put America on notice that every, every living organism was protected by the act. And um, uh, violators were treated rather harshly uh, in the early days. Uh, very different time than than now, right? Um, I think about, I've got this yeah. right. Uh, unanimous passage in the Senate. Uh, this was not it was not as controversial as, as it became later. No, it passed unanimously in the Senate. There were four negative votes in the House, um, and uh, um, it was not until 1978 when the Supreme Court took up a case of TVA versus Hill, which was all over the teleco, the building of the teleco dam in Tennessee. And um, the, it was going to imperil and destroy the habitat of a little tiny fish called the snail darter. And uh, that went all the way to Supreme Court, and they basically said, stop, stop building the dam. It was $110 million dam. 
and it was about 90% complete, and they said, you, you, you can't complete the dam, stop it, uh, because you are going to kill off this particular species, which is a protected species. And um, so at any rate, America woke up at that point and said, oh, my golly, we didn't realize uh, 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 that it was as mm, that, that it covered uh, things that broadly. Uh, that not things, but a species that broadly. Mm. And that's what really woke the country up to the breadth and the depth of the act. And I believe the court ruled, I don't know if it was in this case, the court ruled that what Congress meant with the Endangered Species Act was species to be protected at all costs. Was that this case? Yes. Yes, that's this case, and that was the language of, of the man that wrote the opinion uh, who was Chief Justice Warren Berger at the time. Uh, so uh, at that point, you say uh, people woke up to the, you know, I guess, the teeth and the, the pit bull aspect of this this law. Um, and I guess then the controversies arose, and the and the, and the conflict has has become over um, private property rights, right, in, in large major and local and state governments' uh, rights. Absolutely. Um, those of you hit the two high points. Uh, many of, and especially in the West, many folks characterize this as a land use control mechanism by the federal government. It was never intended to be such. And even during the hearings in 72 and 73, when it was being enacted and uh, massaged for final approval, um, it was never seen or described that way, but that's the way it became interpreted, unfortunately. And a dark mythology has always followed. That was part of it. But the other thing, and the biggest, one of the biggest controversies throughout the Congress in 72 and 73 was the fact that it was a, um, it was um, taking away from the states control of those species um, that were declared as threatened or endangered of extinction. And the states, up until that point, had had absolute control of all of their species. I mean, it was a given that the states were in charge of all of the wildlife species in their, <clears throat> within their boundaries. The only exception to that was the Migratory Bird uh, Treaty Act of 1918, which said that the federal government worked with the states in cooperation to regulate the hunting uh, of endangered of, 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 of migratory waterfowl uh, and um, migratory birds, uh, neotropical birds. Um, so those were the two big, uh, uh, well, that was the big point uh, uh, the, uh, over 72 and 73. Uh, it was not until later, however, after that Supreme Court case, that many people begin to characterize it unjustly as a land use control me- measure of the federal government, which it w- which it was never intended to be. Maybe we should pause right now and uh, have you talk a little bit about biodiversity. Why biodiversity is so important? That's uh, that's uh, kind of the big foundation, right, for the Endangered Species Act. Well, I'm glad, Tom, that you brought that up and mentioned that because that's the big tent. That's the big tent under which the Endangered Species Act falls. And, and just for the, the listeners, 
Well, let me let me define. I can, I've got it right here. Uh, what biodiversity means. Um, let me read something that was written years ago by uh, the famed um, uh, scientist uh, and author up in at Harvard, uh, E. O. Wilson, Ed Wilson. Uh, <clears throat> quote: Biodiversity is the natural world around us and the variety of all of the different kinds of living organisms, the plants, animals, insects, and microorganisms that live on our planet, including man. Every one of these live and work together in ecosystems to maintain and support life on Earth and exist in a very delicate balance. That's what biodiversity is. Now, um, the Endangered Species Act sits right at the heart of that because Biodiversity is all is all about extinction, which is exactly what the Endangered Species Act was um, um, uh, addressed. And um, as the as the as the number of species become extinct within the biodiversity universe, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And it endangers, right now, it endangers our food supply and our medical, um, many medicines, many, many medicines come from the natural world and from these organisms, plants, animals, and, and so forth. Um, now, for, try to picture this, Tom. Picture a great, great big green balloon, a big round green balloon. That represents the biodiversity immunity of all living species on the planet. Everyone, every time a species goes goes extinct, let a little air out of that balloon, and a little air, and a little air, and that goes on until the balloon absolutely collapses, which is what I and others are fearful of, way way down the road. It's not right now; it's not on the doorstep, but it's certainly predictable based upon scientific evidence. And so that's what biodiversity is all about and why it's threatened, and it has been aggravated by climate change and drastically um, drastically um, impacting our biodiversity community. When we hear about uh, uh, wildfires or floods, what we, what we hear from the media and see on TV are, are the structures that have been destroyed, and the people that have been uh, injured or, or killed because of, uh, of a wildfire or a flood or a, or a hurricane or a tornado. Um, you never hear statistics at all about well, how many species were affected or killed off by a, a wildfire. How many species can outrun a wildfire uh, or get out of the way of, of a major flood that scours out all of the lowlands around creeks and, and, and rivers. And, and, and that, is, that is the consequence of, of, of the climate change's impact on our biodiversity community. Do we uh, do we face species extinction at, at this right now? You're not even looking look to the future. Are we facing uh, extinction of, of some species? Well, we are. Let me give you two or three examples. Um, we have lost in the last uh, 
I forget how many. In the last um, 15 or 20 years, I've got the exact date. But in the last few years, we we have lost 9 billion birds. 25% of our bird population is, has, has been um, – has – become extinct and um, that is 25% of the population of our birds 9 billion uh, that's uh, since 1970 25% from just 12 bird families and th- what that indicates is a shift in our ecosystem's ability to support basic bird life and the two major causes of that are habitat loss and habitat degradation and they are followed by uh, predaceous cats, pesticides, and collisions with communications and electric towers and wind turbines. And that's just the bird population alone. The bees go, and, and both the birds and the bees go right to the issue of, uh, of pollination of our food supply. Um, the, we have lost, since 2006, we've lost... 40% of our managed honeybee population. Um, and these are the commercially bred bees that are transported around the country to pollinate crops uh, that are worth well over $15 billion annually. That's the, the managed honeybee population. 25% of our wild bee population are at risk of extinction. And again, it's, it's pesticides and habitat destruction. Um, the New York Times called it two years ago. They did a major magazine on it called The Insect Apocalypse. And um, um, uh, from that, uh, our food supply, because they're the pollinators, the birds and the bees and the butterflies. I mean, the butterflies, you go to the monarch population. We've lost 90% of both the West Coast and the East Coast monarch population of butterflies. Those three, birds, bees, and butterflies, are our major pollinators of our food. And as they're cut back, the food supply is impacted and the medical supply is impacted. 50% of our drugs and prescription medicine come from, come from, from um, um, certain wildlife and uh, uh, the plant community, which are at risk of extinction. So those are the, that's the big picture. Uh, you, I want to quote you. This is from the the, the prologue um, introduction to, I think it's volume one, uh, quoting Lowell Bayer here um, from the uh, Codex of Endangered Species Act, volumes one and two. Um, so uh, you say the perils of the that the Endangered Species Act forestalls loom distantly. The price of the promise comes due up front. And therein, I think, lies the, the problem. People, you know, people have problems today. They're economic problems, uh, which, which maybe these private property rights and the state government rights can, can help uh, in, improve our lives today. And uh, the, the perils seem more distant in our minds. I think that's a, that's a crux of the problem. Yes. Right now... We can get drugs readily uh, in times of uh, crisis when our, our supply chain has been interrupted. Uh, we've seen grocery shelves go empty, and that's just in moments of crisis when the 
um, uh, the, the uh, delivery systems have 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 failed. But try to look up look at those examples um, as as more, more happening more frequently because of the lack of pollination of our food supplies, and um, um, the same with medicines. Uh, um, there are certain medicines that you try to order now, and um, you may have to wait two or three days to get it because it's out of stock at, at many pharmacies, etc. So um, that's that's the real world side of what you have just commented upon, um, and it's coming. I mean, and man, when that green big green balloon totally collapses, that when man, that's when man. Um, disappears. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it's too late, right? At that point, then it's too, then it's far too late. Yeah. Which is why I and and many of my colleagues and 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 dear friends before who are, are long gone um, have been talking about this for years. And maybe it's kind of like crying wolf or crying crying fire in a theater, but. But it's 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 a matter of time, and the cri- we see because we looked ahead, we see the crisis coming, and so that's why we're so vocal about it today. Volumes volumes one and two, volume one, um, Tom is the mm, is the um, complete history. Nobody had written it completely from beginning to end for the last fifty years, uh, all aspects of the Endangered Species Act. But about halfway through that, I. I, I pulled together a, 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 a group of colleagues that are noted scientists and practitioners in this area and administrators and said, okay, uh, I started this project three or four years ago. Here's where I am on it today. What am I missing? Um, yeah, let's take another look at, at what we started out to do and where we are. And they all agreed that what we needed to address is the future and, and, and lay down lay down lessons that we have learned over the last 50 years for the future administrators of the Endangered Species Act. So that's what volume two is, a, a, a series of, of chapters well thought out by, by the scientists and the practitioners and the administrators of the Endangered Species Act um, that, that are very carefully thought out and measured. And at least it leaves, it leaves a place for the future administrators to to go to uh, to determine what they what happens when they have a problem that is not part part of history. Uh, I, now, why was volume two important? Because when volume when the Endangered Species Act of 1973 was created, they didn't have, nor did they try to really look ahead, way ahead to see what is potentially on the horizon. They didn't see climate change coming. They didn't see the um, uh, uh, major wildfires and, and other uh, uh, floods and so forth that would impact um, and endanger species. They didn't see the wildlife trafficking that goes on in the world or the invasive species or things like CWD. Um, or whirling disease in fish. Well, none of that was anticipated, nor was the law relaxed enough to permit the administrators to 
um, to work on solutions that would address the problems. The act was so top-down, so rigid, that there was really no room uh, to deal with the with the unknowns that presented themselves over the last 50 years. And so during the Clinton administration, Bruce Babbitt saw the problem, said, this is not working. The act is not working properly. Let's try to relax it, its standards a bit and find ways for our administrators to um, um, uh, have more room to deal with these unknowns. And so a whole series of regulations came out. There have been only three major amendments by Congress to the Endangered Species Act. The last one was in 88. And there, as we all know, Congress just doesn't seem to be really working very well and hasn't worked well for years. And so <clears throat> the latitude was given through regulations to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service <clears throat> to respond to the unknowns that the act did not anticipate 50 years ago. Well, let's take a break, a brief break. We'll come back and have uh, much more conversation on the Endangered Species Act. We're talking with Lowell Bear. Uh, he's an attorney and legal environmental historian and author and uh, editor of the, the new books, Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2. Those are out and available now. We'll have more following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with Lowell Bear. He is an attorney and legal environmental historian and author and editor of the new books, The Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2. So, Lowell Bear, um, before we get to, to Volume 2, and I do want to get to that uh, for sure, and uh, some, you know, looking to the future, the, the next 50 years. Um, I want to have you talk about the Northern Spotted Owl. This is kind of where I came in, awareness of the Endangered Species Act. Uh, controversy in the late 80s, early 90s, right, um, up in the, the timber country, the Northwest. And uh, Northern Spotted Owl and the timber wars here, the timber industry. Um, and so I guess the, the first thing that, you know, that... that that uh, the timber industry, some of the industry said was, well, this is, this is just one species, right? Northern spotted owls. And, and it shouldn't shut down the entire industry here because of this one, one species. Um, the other thing is there's a whole host of issues here that come to the fore. How do we manage old growth forests? And, and uh, how do we manage for fire that are all tied into this controversy? And what, Tom, what is the, uh, what's the exact question? I, uh, so I, maybe just have you uh, talk a little bit about that controversy and uh, what we learned from it, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, and before I, 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 let's, before we sign off today, I'm going to tell you about the next volume coming out, which will be released on April 22nd of this year, which is a layman's version of volumes one and two. And the foreword is written by... Um, a, a delightful and uh, a really a great uh, lady from your state, Terry Tempest Williams, wrote ah, the forward mm -hmm. for the next book that's coming out on April 22nd. But oh, great. To get back to your question about the Northerners, and I want to talk about that if we can before the program ends. But um, the uh, um, Northern Spotted Owl issue really started over the Northwest Forest plan 
which was managed by the U.S. Forest Service. They began to change that plan, and it was not spy, and which caused much of the problems, many of the problems. And it was only five years, and it was five years into that, uh, and that great controversy caused, caused by the Northwest Forest Plan, which really began to limit the uh, old growth for uh, timbering in the old growth forest. Uh, but five years into that controversy, <clears throat> the uh, spotted owl became uh, listed as um, uh, threatened or endangered. And because it was a great soundbite and the, the Endangered Species Act had already been been vilified with this old mythology that, that continues to follow it even today, um, um, the, the media and the forest uh, uh, gr- groups uh, and, the, and the, the locals, the local uh, uh, people that did the timbering, the lumberjacks and so forth, all jumped on it and said, this is a, see, this is a, an endangered species problem. And they further vilified the act. It wasn't at all. It was, it was the Northwest Forest Plan that caused the controversy. However, the, 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 the um, blame was put on the Endangered Species Act because it was an easy target for everybody to focus on. Uh, and people, people that have not read the, the history as carefully as I have uh, lose sight of that as well. But that, but but then Clinton, seeing during his his first run for the presidency, recognized the problem, and and vowed that he would go to the Northwest and work out a a, a Northwest forest plan that um, was not as um, not as as harsh on the timber reliant communities and the like. And that's exactly what he did. He and his vice president. Uh, Al Gore uh, went out to uh, the, the timber country, and they spent a whole afternoon, a whole day actually, um, in an, in a big auditorium where they sat at a table with all the stakeholders involved, and carefully went through the issues and the and the logic and the, the logical conclusions based upon that. Um, so that's a brief history of the of the spotted all controversy, uh, uh, which again. Um, put a put the, a bad rap on the Endangered Species Act, which really had no nothing to do with the forest plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's much else we could talk about in Volume One, note, but I do want to get to to Volume Two, and then the the new book to be coming out. Um, I'll just I'll just mention uh, you could read about this in in Volume One. Um, you know, we heard about sage grouse, the whooping crane, delisting of the gray wolf, uh, many other. Uh, Many other uh, parts of this saga, but I do want to get to to volume two, and that's looking at the next fifty years. Um, tell me, maybe did pick out uh, one or two of the uh, kind of the hopeful things as you look forward to the next uh, fifty years. Uh, um, adjustments, plans that that might work, give you hope. Well, there there are two there are two items that jump out. The other uh, the others issues are really in the weeds. And I'm going to talk about two of them. First of all, there was a recognition by uh, the Clinton administration and his Secretary of Interior, Bruce Babbitt, that um, 
the regulations need, needed to be more flexible for the administrators of the act to really make it work with local landowners. And um, back when the act was passed in 1973, it took a couple of years to get the regulations drawn up. But they, 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 when they were finally issued in 75, um, they, they were only 50 pages long. Today, they are 5,000 pages, which gives the administrators a lot of room, as well as the working landowners, to, to work collaboratively with the federal government through an endangered species uh, potential listing or critical habitat listing for that species on their land. That's number one. It was more flexibility. Um, the, when the act was passed in 73, the men that, that drew, wrote that act, 72 and 73, I knew them all. Um, and most of them are gone now. There are three that are still alive and very, very uh, helpful to me in, in developing the history. But, but um, 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 they, they, they were all World War II veterans. And they came at it from a command and control mentality, which is what drove us through World War II, and which that mentality continued to survive in our country of command and control, not only with the federal government, but, but at the corporate level as well. That's how people thought. And these were hardened veterans that wrote that act and made it very rigid that, that this is the way it's going to be, one way, no compromises, no outs. And so it was a very rigid, rigid act. And that's what, what Bruce Babbitt recognized um, when uh, he became Secretary of Interior and, uh, and began to create regulatory um, opportunities for working landowners to deal with, with the rigid rigidity of the act itself. Um, the act was 20 pages when it was written. It is now 50 pages, just the act alone. And the regulations are 5,000 pages. Uh, the second recognition going forward was that we needed for the federal government to talk to our working landowners. They had an, a, a, an approach uh, up until the Clinton days, that they sat in Washington or their regional offices of, of the Fish and Wildlife Service and made declarations of how things will be for the working landowner. And there really wasn't a lot of, of discussion. Uh, it was one way or the highway. Uh, and um, the, the um, men that managed this could only see um, a, 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 a basically a they, they were called combat biologists uh, because that's the way things were, one way. And, and that rigidity uh, changed with Clinton. But then the, on top of that, the engagement between the federal government, the state governments, and the working landowners uh, became more of a paradigm than it had been in the past. And they actually found uh, space uh, sitting around a conference table, they found space for each to hear from the other what the issues were and how they were being approached, and it was called and it became known as collaborative conservation. And today, a group has been formed and incorporated with its own executive director called 
conservation without conflict. And it all boils down to collaboration between the states, the federal government, and the working landowners. Um, and so long as we have a two-way street, a two-way dialogue going on uh, with the parties, um, uh, it will work. That plus the flexibility allowed the federal government, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, those two things will really be heralds going forward over the next 50 years. Um, there are a lot, there's a lot more, but that really gets down into the weeds, um, which are, which rely on science and interpretations of the law. Let's take another brief break. When we come back, final segment with uh, Lowell Bear. Uh, we're talking about the new books, uh, Codex of Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2, and there's a new book uh, uh, coming out uh, shortly. We'll talk a bit about that in the next segment following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We have about seven or eight minutes left in a uh, brief final segment with uh, Lowell Bear. He is an attorney and legal environmental historian and author, editor of the books The Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volumes uh, 1 and uh, 2. I want to have you talk about the new book, but just previous to that, Lowell Bear, um, you, you mentioned um, in, in these books the... Um, Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Uh, tell me briefly about that. The, the, that act, otherwise known as RAWA by its initials, R-A-W-A, has been now pending in Congress for over six years. And what it does is provide a, 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 an annual appropriation of $1.4 billion every year by the federal government to the states to fund better um, uh, better management programs for their wildlife, one point four billion. The tribes get a hundred million, and the rest goes across the states. Um, now, the reason it is not passed, and everybody recognizes that we need this, um, is because they have not figured out an offset to pay for it. Um, under the current way that the uh, government is managed, um, an act of Congress will not be, be go through without some offset um, for the payment, where, where the government knows where that payment is coming from. Uh, and so they're, st they're still searching for a way to provide that $1.4 billion per year to the states uh, for a better management of their programs. The, the, the big Achilles heel of um, the Endangered Species Act was Congress did not, nor did, the, did anyone really recognize the cost of, what the, of administering the Endangered Species Act was going to cost, nor did they recognize how many species were going to show up as, as listed as being threatened um, with, with extinction. And that, that underfunding has been the Achilles heel, the Achilles heel from day one, which, which the states even recognized throughout 72 and, and asked the Congress for more money, but they just didn't get it. But that's 
what the Recovering America's Wildlife Act is all about, funding the Endangered Species Act by funneling it to the states. Uh, so tell me about the new, the new volume, the new book coming out. Before I do, let me backtrack on something. And during break, I was thinking about this. I mentioned earlier that um, 50% of our drugs come from compounds that are, come from wild plants and animals. And a few of those include aspirin, penicillin, two chemotherapy, chemotherapy drugs, and an anticoagulant um, and a blood pressure regulator, um, compounds that dissolve blood clots um, and are used to treat um, rheumatism and thrombosis and contusions. Um, there's uh, another drug that prevents heart attacks. The leading malaria drug, drug comes from a, from a plant um, and so forth. So I wanted to just add a little meat to that comment that I made earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, now the new book is entitled um, Earth's Emergency Room. Um, Earth's Emergency Room, and there's a, a long subtitle. Um, that comes out on uh, Earth Day, April 22nd of this year. The publisher called me after going through volumes one and two, and he, he, he said, well, this, these are great books. I mean, they're great, great research books. They're more for the academic crowd because they, they're pretty deep in the weeds. Can you write a book that's an abridgment of these two books that perhaps brings in the human element behind the Endangered Species Act? Uh, would you would you do that? Would you write a layman's version of your of your books? So I did, and I, I um, began to go through all of my notes. I worked on this for about seven years, and began uh, went through my notes, my interviews, and so forth. And I could not believe the amount of material I had available for the, the human interest side of this. And so the book, um, the book uh, in the book, there's. Uh, Oh, golly, there's um, mayhem, uh, fistfights early on when this was, was when the act was passed. And, and really some ugly situations between federal and state authorities when the feds tried to really put pressure on the, um, on the states to administer the act the way Washington wanted it administered. Uh, there's sex, there's drugs, there's... Um, Mm, uh, there's a, a, a suicide, a murder and a suicide involved um, and other human interest items that popped out from my research that, that really, really showed the human side of and some of the human tragedies that uh, were wrought by the Endangered Species Act. I mean, some of those timber war uh, incidents up there in the Northwest were, were just unbelievable. Um, and and so forth. So, at any rate, that's what the new book is about. It's about the Endangered Species Act, but the, from a human element standpoint. And as I said, Carrie Temple Williams um, uh, helped. Um, she wrote the foreword for the book. Oh, it sounds it sounds very interesting. Uh, hopefully, you come back on this show in a couple of months uh, to, to talk about that when it comes out. Well, I'd love to do that, Tom. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, the uh, the the uh, 
Codex of the Endangered Species Act, Volumes 1 and 2, uh, those volumes are out. We've been talking with the editor, Lowell Bayer. Uh, he's an attorney and legal environmental historian and author and uh, has been talking to us about that. Uh, Lowell Bayer, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. We'll go out as we do on Thursdays with uh, Leo T. and Skywatcher. Many cultures, one sky. If you look up tonight, you're going to see Venus shining. Well, actually, let's look up in the morning and see bright morning star Venus in the southeast before and during dawn. It's getting a little bit lower every week. Below or lower right of Venus is sparkly orange Antares, which also serves as the eye of the bull. Jupiter shines in southern Aries. You can't miss the largest planet in our solar system high in the southeast to the south. These evenings it stands at its highest around 7 or 8 p.m. How easily can you spot Aries' small star pattern which Jupiter is in? Its brightest two stars are Hamal and Sheraton. Just below Sheraton at the end of the little purple line here is Mesartham. These three stars of larger dimmer triangulum are stacked nearly vertically near here. To find these jewels they are about the width of your fist at arm's length from Jupiter. And as we travel to Jupiter with the speed of light with our own eyes, NASA's Juno spacecraft has physically gone out here a few years ago and again revealing Jupiter's volcanic moon Io like never before in spectacular new images. Juno ended 2023 in style, coming closer to the volcanic moon on December 30th, more than any mission has for 20 years, passing to within 930 miles of the volcanic moon. Passing around uh, 930 miles of Io, the most volcanic body in the solar system, on Saturday, December 30th, 2023, Juno, which launched in August of 2011, reached Jupiter and its system of moons on July 4th, 2016, after a 1.7 billion mile trek, capturing six views of Io to cap off 2023 in style. Some are black and white, while others are in color. The purpose of this close passage wasn't just to take incredible images, but also to collect important data about Io and its volcanism. We have one of these new color photos, courtesy of Natasa and Kevin McGill on the Leo T. Skywatcher site. Io gets its status as the solar system's most volcanic body as a result of immense gravity of Jupiter, the most massive planet in the solar system, in addition to gravitational influence of other large moons. Together, the Jovian moons and Jupiter pull and push on Io, generating tidal forces. These tidal forces are so immense they can cause the surface of Io to flex intensely enough to rise and drop by as great as 330 feet. And a coronal mass ejection from the X5 class flare from our own sun, the solar flare of Solar Cycle 25, the largest, will likely trigger geomagnetic storms when it hits Earth. An image again on the Skywatcher side of the sun in ultraviolet light showing a solar flare that erupted on New Year's Eve and is, uh, is rocking the Earth a little bit here. Image from NOAA. The New Year's Eve flare caused a huge bubble of plasma from a region of the sun called the corona, which is equivalent to the sun's outer atmosphere, and this has an Earth-directed component, so the aurora should be spectacular for a while. It's one sky, many cultures. This one, a supernatural person in the lake, an Apache legend. By Pliny Earl Goddard in 1911. Long ago, an old woman gave her boy a present that he might become a medicine man. They were camping through the plains with nothing to eat but roots and wild seeds. They were all hungry. The woman came to her son and said, My boy, I am hungry. Have you anything? Go home, and tomorrow you will have plenty to eat, her boy replied. 
The next day her son began to make a corral close to the river. He gathered men together and told them to drive in the antelope. They drove them in and killed them. After butchering them, they carried the meat home with them. They cut the meat into slices and dried and tanned the hides. The old woman came to her son and asked that he return her gift. I have already given it to the supernatural one. He left her and came into his own country. He came to a place called Sticks Swim Around. There are tent poles sticking out of the water there. He lives on the bottom of the lake. The people all came after him, but when they came back to their own country, they could not find him. Then they commenced following his tracks. They saw where the teepee poles had been dragged into the water. They looked all around, but could not find them. From Legends of America. So keep looking around and feel the magic. Look up, look around, and get lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T.